Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends. Oh, it's a good one. I'm really happy for this show. Oh my gosh, you're going to share it with friends. Africa Miranda, Africa. Boston born and Alabama raised, is an actress, model, host, author, beautypreneur, a digital personality, realtor. I mean, you could see the amazing spaces on her Instagram page. It's better than Zillow. As a face and spokesperson for brands like Refinery29, Macy's, TJ Maxx, and more, she's best known for many beauty culture-related television programs. She has good advice, too. Because of Africa, I stepped my own face game up. Seriously. She's been seen on Bravo TV's The New Atlanta and can catch her like I did on Netflix's Archive 81. And if you want more insight, get her book, Step Up, Step Out, and Shine. Also welcome back, Dr. Janice Adams. Oh, we love it when Janice is here. The doctor is in. Emmy award-winning journalist, historian, entrepreneur, and best-selling author of 11 books, Dr. Janice Adams is the host of Public Radio's The Janice Adams Show and podcast. She has appeared on many shows, but to name a few, ABC, BET, CBS, The Today Show, and NPR's All Things Considered. Her book, Glory Days, 365 Inspired Moments in African-American History was licensed by McDonald's and reached more than 3 million readers. As founder of Backpacks, a children's publishing company, and Harambe, the first national book club for African-American literature, she changed the publishing landscape for authors and audiences. Dr. Adams has been engaged by history and culture since childhood, a Northern schools desegregation pioneer at eight. She was one of the four children selected to break New York's de facto segregation in the public schools in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. Her master's is the nation's first graduate degree in Black Studies. Her doctoral chair was author and composer Shirley Graham Du Bois. Whew, I'm telling you, we get some amazing guests and today is no different. Both ladies are amazing. Can't wait for you to hear this. Catch me with Sarah Silverman in March in New York, the 15th and 16th. One of those dates is at the Beacon Theater, the 18th and 19th Charlotte and Durham, North Carolina. And on the 28th of March, I'm in Boston. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com for those tickets. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast.com email instagram is friends like us podcast and twitter is friends like us 10 become more than a friend leave us a tip or donation by going to our patreon page go to patreon backslash friends like us special shout out to our patreon friends it's because of you we keep going and now for our golden friends you have the option to watch our recording live backstage go to patreon backslash friends like us and be gold Special shout out to Timmy, Tamara, Stace. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies. It's hoodie season, so come on, folks. Coffee mugs, face masks, tank tops, all available. Just go to marinafranklin.com. 
weekly on my YouTube channel. I go live with my assistant, Evelyn Frick, my wacky friend, Dave Juskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave reviews. We have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by. And sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. With friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still if you want to. It's not gone. Get vaccinated. Booster up. And Black Lives Matter. And welcome to Friends Like Us. I have today. <laughs> I have today Janice Adams and Africa Miranda. Woo! Yeah, hey, Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really good group. I'm so happy to have both of you. As I said before, you're both amazing women. That and as you know, I've had you on several times, and it's the first time you've been together. So, you know, quick meeting, yes. And as I was telling you, Janice, like Africa's been on the show, so she's like entrepreneur, actress, who I've seen recently at Archive. Was it Archive eighty one? Archive eighty one, yeah. And I was watching it on Netflix, and I was like, "Is that Africa?" And then I've seen you, I think I saw you in a, I mean, you've been working a lot. As, yeah, the last couple, like since I, so 2021, things just really picked up during the pandemic because, you know, you know, the industry kind of shut down, but thanks to self-tapes and, you know, all of those good things, I was able to keep submitting and I've just been working pretty regularly again since 2021. So you can work off of the self-tapes? Well, that's the only way I've been getting work because I have not, I haven't been in, per my last in-person audition was March of 2020. Well, no, it was like the end of February, beginning of March, 2020 in New York. I remember it was a commercial because I saw a girl that I knew and we were just like, is this the last, like we gave each other a hug because we were like, we feel like this is going to be the last time we can hug people. And I have not been on an in-person audition since then. Wow. You give me hope. I mean, because it's I, from what I hear from casting directors, like I we it may never go back, like may, you know, a little bit, but they just like that they can see more people, they can get through it quicker. So thank you, because I was being lazy with these, uh, <laughs> these at home. I mean, I just got this light that you could kind of see I'm glowing. From, yeah. But like. And I got a ring light. I finally, I was like, all right. I know, same. Like I got the box, I got the soft boxes for this. I, you know, I got a pop-up backdrop. I just, I was like, okay, we got to do it. So okay. I do it. remember to put mine up because the ring light used to create those rings on mm -hmm. your glasses. Yep. So um, I stopped using them, but I do, I'm glad you reminded me. I do have my soft lights. And there's me, and I was like, cause at first I was like, I'm not, I was like, my ring light is fine. And I, but then when I got them, I said, oh, this makes it, this makes the difference. It makes a huge, yeah. this light right now, this is a, I forget what it, I, I call this one. This is a Elgato okay. key light. So I can make myself look. Oh, see, right. All the different tones, tones, cold, warm. And this is from my phone. I'm changing the app. Ooh, Isn't that cool? Wow. Okay. Oh, I like that hey. one. I'm like, I like that one. I like anything golden. I like golden too. Yeah. And this makes it hotter. And <laughs> I always randomly remember shine on my forehead. there was an episode. Well, one of Oprah's episodes, and I was much younger, but she had the cast of Waiting to Exhale on. And, you know, Forrest Whitaker directed it. And he was talking about lighting and how, like, you know, like the movie, they were, of course, they were in the desert, but he also just talked about like lighting black people, especially black women, in those like golden, the amber tones. And I was like, that just stuck with me. And I was like, yes. 
give me amber tones like forever. Amber tones. Don't forget yes. what, what that did with Julie Dash, really changing yes. everything. Yes. Lighting, you, lighting black women properly. You are and so true. Doing a television show years ago and it, it gets insulting after a while because the set, it, it was a network show, but the set was lit for the morning news team, which was a white man with gray hair and a white woman with blonde hair. Yes. And then they had me come on the set to do my own show, which had a different backdrop, but they refused to change the lighting. Change the lighting. It just got ridiculous. You know, um, and why? Because <laughs> they just don't know their their comfort zone. It's that's why I, I yeah. find that breaking the comfort zone is really stressful. For them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but scary. Africa. Oh, uh-huh, I was just saying, ahead. and why do you have that comfort zone in the first place? <laughs> why right. is that where you need to be comfortable? <laughs> so yes, and Stacy has also joined us backstage. Welcome, Stacy and TB. Hey, Stacey. Hey, TD. So they're both watching. Those, these are our Patreon subscribers. They, um, they help keep the podcast going. And I, and I really, really, really thank you all for that. So they're saying hello to everyone. Um, I also want to ask you, Af- Africa, we were talking about, so Janice, just full disclosure, like Africa also does skin products. Africa does too many things. It does. She is like, so she sells property. She's like, she knows how to set her space. I was worried because I was like, she's going to be like, why? What's the plug for? No, no. But- I see the eucalyptus. I'm with it. I'm with it. The eucalyptus. I, I was like, she's going to like that. Um, but I recently, I've been getting facials. I never got facials before. And my friend was encouraging me to get micro needling done Mm -hmm. which I was like I don't even know what that is and when the woman started doing it I was like okay but I have no makeup on right now and I I've had Africa on the show talking numerous times about skin products your steps your toner Mm -hmm. wait you you well I told you I was like the key was you know the definitely like seeing an esthetician but like at night using retinol like that's like using retinol and sunblock if you don't do anything but those two, like you, that will help you coast. And I didn't realize sunblock for computers too. Every day, whether you're inside, outside, if we're on these screens, like you're getting UV light. So sunblock every single, like from, I always say from like from here to here, if you're going to get your nails done, do your hands because we're sticking our hands in there. So yes. And so microneedling which is, can you talk about microneedling and then what happened to you? So, okay. So I will preface this by saying, I think it's a great treatment. I had a slightly different like story with mine, but I think it's a great treatment. And I, it is something that I will do again in the future. But microneedling is essentially where a trained esthetician or medical, you know, dermatologist basically uses, it's like the closest I can get you, if you're listening, like think of a pen and imagine that pen making like, millions of little injections, you know, all over your face with a, you know, super fine needle. And, you know, your esthetician will be able to determine the depth that it needs to go. But the idea is that you're creating all of these like injuries in your skin to then stimulate healing, which produces collagen, which we all know is like the holy grail of like youthfulness 
because you want the plumpness in the skin. And so what it does is as the skin has to heal, that help, it's really essentially like speeding up the process of like turning over cells on your face. So it helps with fine lines, with texture, with dark spots, like everything. It really is incredible. With that said... See, look at me. <laughs> right, exactly. So look at Marina. Marina is an example of when you do it and it's wonderful and it's amazing. So um, I tried it. Um, now, mind you, before this, I've even had chemical peels, which are even more like invasive where literally your skin sheds like a lizard. Had no issues. Fantastic. So I was like, well, I could do a chemical peel. Microneedling is nothing. Get the microneedling. First day, fine. Second day is fine. Third day, had a little puffiness. Well, um, one of the things you have to do is make sure that you use sunblock. And so for whatever reason, I was still using my same sunblock, which I won't say the brand because I don't want to like, it's not about the brand, but I don't have, before this, I didn't have sensitive skin. So it wasn't one that was like, you know, for sensitive skin. It was just a regular sunblock that I had been using for years with no reaction. Well, all of a sudden, like by that fourth day, imagine the texture of like an orange skin, my face just had like a rash all over. And it was weird because I the rash was on my eyelids. It was on my... You know, so at first I was like, well, wait a minute. Is it the microneedling? What's happening? Like, am I having a reaction? Talked to my esthetician. You know, we, we stopped the aftercare products. We were like, let's just wait it out. Well, it didn't go away. But what I realized was every day I was still... You know, you start doing the process of elimination. But what I was still doing every day was sunblock because you've got to protect the skin and but then I started looking at my face and I didn't get microneedling on my eyelids, but the rash was on my eyelids. It was on my ears. Because so if you think about when you apply sunblock, you're going on your whole face, you know, you're getting your ears, you're getting your eyelids, you're getting everything, you're getting your neck. And so I went to my derm. Now I went to, a, to the dermatologist. I had to go through this whole thing of, you know, getting hydrocortisone and a, a non-steroid topical treatment to basically calm my skin. But what had happened was that I had a reaction to the sunblock and because my skin was in that healing state, it essentially ruined my skin's barrier. And the bar your skin barrier is really, is it's think of it like it's a, this literally almost like an invisible line of like, you're always trying to find that balance of moisturized, glowing skin. Like where you're like, your skin now is balanced, Marina, like it's glowing, it's healthy. It doesn't, you know, there's, you know, there's no irritation, you know, you're not having extreme yeah. dryness or extreme oil and oiliness. It's like pretty balanced. So that usually means your barrier is intact. If you're dealing with extreme dryness or say you go to put products on your skin and it burns or an itchiness, that usually means that your skin barrier is damaged. So I had to go into like extreme, like pamper mode to get my skin back to normal. It was a whole thing. It took about three, four months. <laughs> it took that long? Because once that barrier is like off, it's almost like you're, I, I had to reheal my skin. So like the microneedling, I couldn't even really get the benefits of the microneedling because I had to heal my skin barrier. So I was essentially like putting like um, Aquaphor and like different like things, like, you know, everything was hydrating. I couldn't use any retinoids, like no skin here. I couldn't use any of that for three months. It was just like everything for sensitive skin, sensitive skin. And then finally it just started to kind of regulate, regulate, regulate. And I noticed like about the third or fourth month, I was like, oh, my skin's back to normal. And I started slowly reintroducing my regular regimen and it was okay. And your skin looks amazing. Thank you. Well, I, I had to get... I, like, Jana's skin to looks amazing. Yes, I was going to say, Jana's, your skin looks Jana's incredible. Looking, oh. you, you look gorgeous. I, I'm nervous about those kinds of things, though. I really yeah. am. 
Because it just seems like what you're saying is I'm opening all my pores at one time, which is, well, you know, which is what's being done. And then in your case, you put poison into open pores. Right. I did. But yeah. I will say, you know, I'm, I, I'm my, not my, trying I, to blame that. I'm just no, saying well, you, the sunscreen should be the one I use is mineral. And see, and I, mine okay. was not mineral yeah. because, yeah, and so I was not using mineral prior to this. And so that's why it was irritating, you know, because my skin was already yeah. in that weakened state from the microneedling. I'm like, but I was still I'm like, but, but I'm also a person who gets fillers and Botox and, and tries different things. So I'm always open to try and see what happens. I don't know. So it's a risk. Gorgeous women I've ever met, seen, etc. was Lena Horn. And I was in her dressing room one day and I said, um, what do you use? You know, because come on, we're we're all trained to think that some product is going to give us the, the miracle look and the miracle glow and all of that. Mm-hmm. He said, I have used for years Vaseline. And I'm saying Vaseline on your yes. skin, you yes. know, on your face. Yes. When, and I don't use Vaseline, but I do use olive oil. Because oh, olive oil. Olive oil is another one that's good. Um, anything that you can take inside, which is what you're doing when you put stuff on your skin, is you know, mm-hmm. the pores are open, you are ingesting it through your skin. I, I don't know the technical terms but for yes. it. But mm-hmm. I figure that if you can use it that way, then you then it's okay to yeah. put it on, on your face. But you wouldn't take in all of these other things and say, let, let me just eat this. But the Vaseline, <laughs> Good point. it's not the first time that I've heard that for I've never some heard people, that. Vaseline is, is like a miracle kind of, and her skin was absolutely flawless. Now, would her skin have been absolutely flawless with something else? Maybe. Maybe that was, you know, uh, but still. Is that's not that likely because we've got too much in the atmosphere, the you know, and everything and else. Yeah. Said, oh, I don't have to think about this because I'm going to be gorgeous anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, so she. Anyway, I just leave it with that. Yeah, Lena Vaseline. Vaseline. Well, well, wow! I've you've never I heard about Vaseline. So this is the thing. Now, and I, because I, when I used to live in New York, I did it all the time, especially in the winters when it was brutally cold, because what Vaseline does, it's not, it doesn't moisturize your skin, but it does put a barrier. So it can, it locks in whatever moisture you have. It can protect you from dirt, grime, all those things. Um, now, for some people, it can clog your pores, but there are two things that are similar, very similar to Vaseline that also work really well. So Aquaphor is one. And you know, like they tell you to put Aquaphor on like, on, you know, cuts, bruises, chapped skin. So you can use that the same way. Another thing that I found in my research last year when I was healing my skin um, is CeraVe has something called a healing ointment. And it has, pre- it's almost identical to Vaseline, except it's a little thinner. So it's not, um, if, if you are at risk of having skin that's prone to breakouts, it doesn't do that. So even now, after I do my skincare routine at night, 
The final thing that I do before I go to bed is a thin layer of the CeraVe healing ointment because it locks in like the moisture and the product. So when I wake up in the morning, my skin's soft, it's very moisturized. I do that on my lips. I do it around, you know, like those areas around my eyes, you know, anywhere. And so no, Ms. Horn had it 100% right, like 100% right. My my media head is kicking in and saying that we are simply discussing what has worked for us and not making any recommendations. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Everybody in the audience, that is our official legal disclaimer. Absolutely, and- absolutely. I'm like, I'm willing to take these risks with, on my face. Please do not do, so, do, not do the same. They said, aha, I love the disclaimer thing. Yes. <laughs> so, but I, you know, I also realized like, I, I just didn't know all this stuff about my skin. I had no understanding. I was always told that, I, you know, my mom aged pretty well. So I knew I was going to, and people are always shocked when they hear my age. So I knew that was just genetics. But then Mm -hmm. I also try to eat right. You know, a lot of people don't talk, you know, like vegetables, like broccoli and greens. Mm -hmm. I try to get a lot of green in my diet because that changes the way I look all the time. If I eat bad, if I eat sugar, it pops up in my skin all the time. But um, there's something that I just like this the protection like that you were talking about. I put a serum on mm-hmm. now at night and I wake up, I put it on my lips. I've never felt better. And the hydration, I never paid attention. Yeah. It makes hi- a I difference. Like, stretching right. thing. I thought my skin, you know, I just, and now I can see other people and I'm like, you're not hydrated. <laughs> see, you've joined the club. <laughs> I, can, I have joined the club. I can see it. So... Anyway, we all looking good. We all looking fat. Exactly, exactly. This so is- let's get into these uh, topics. Yes. Now, the reason I put, like I said, Janice, I, I thought about you. This is still Black History Month, of course. When this comes out, we'll be into Women's Month. Yes. But Black History Month shouldn't just be a month anyway. It should be all year long as we see what's going on. Exactly. They're trying to avoid what is true. But, you know, the idea of schools and the reason I put this these topics in as well is because of what's happening in Harlem with the defunding of a lot of the schools. So I right off the bat, I would just want to ask you, Janice, what do you see of what's going on in New York? Like, how do you respond to it in New York City? Have you noticed? And well, you know, for me, it's your daughter's going to schools. And um, because my cousin and I and two others are the children who were selected as the four test children, which is really what they did call us, to desegregate the New York City schools. And that became the one of the models that was carried to desegregate the North. And most people don't even realize that... Um, Northern schools were segregated because we have this myth of the great North and the terrible mm-hmm. South. The whole place is the United States and segregation was was the thing. So for me, I see it as, you know, I take it in as personal saying, OK, they said we're going to take your childhood. And, you know, I, it's not a complaint. I'm just saying that was the thing. And because of that then other children will not have to go through this in the future. And to think that my whole generation that ended up doing this, making these sacrifices 
as parents to their children, as children themselves, and it has not changed. At a certain point, my note to myself on, on this was, does America want a future or does it not? And when you put, it's not just New York City with the defunding, it is I mean, if you say defund the police, ah, but if you say defund the schools, no problem. That's right. There's a problem with that. And it goes hand in glove with what's happening in, in Florida with the attacks on, on Black studies just in time for Black History Month to make as many. Um, so I'm sure their, their checklist is full in terms of, wow, we created this conversation for the whole country for a whole month. Um, and Texas is doing a similar thing. It is it is a, an affront. And Black people have to remember that Black people are taxpayers too. It's not just white people who are taxpayers. Every time this country refers to, well, taxpayers this and taxpayers that, it's always white. We too pay taxes. And the idea that we should be underwriting your racism is an affront. So, and that is why many, I'm not advocating it because everybody cannot do it, but that is why the numbers of Black parents dealing with homeschooling has grown so much over the past few years. It is for that reason. So, and it's a different topic, but it's the same topic. A one-day strike would would, um, bring attention to it because the state, pays the city money for every child who attends school for that day. And oh, wow. oh, wow. And that's pretty much the way funding goes. Uh, it, the, the cities are reimbursed. So removing your children from the school is not, is not really an option. But calling attention to how the, the city makes its money for the schools is an option. So, like, your children went to the New York public school. My children or? did not go to public school in New York City because, at that point, um, by that point, we we had moved to Connecticut. We raised, okay. I raised my children in Connecticut. Right. I do remember my mother chasing tax areas that had better schools, like. She just would like, you're going to go to this school, this area, because it's it's better fund, you know, mm-hmm. like she, you know, there there's some parents who've been put in jail for this, yeah, like, you know, moving to a certain neighborhood just so their kids could go to school or pretending like they have a different yeah, address. Yeah, address. There's yep. a story of a black woman who I think they were sending her away for a long time because she was just... Yes. It it happened with a black woman. I've forgotten where she is, but I wrote about it actually. And I wrote about it and said how interesting, because in a way, my mother did the same thing for me. Um, The reason that we were in that school, the school that was selected, and and I see you have Margaret Douglas on the list, so I don't know. Yes, that was for you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I did not know that. I said, wow. And thank you for remembering that. Margaret Douglas was as far as I know, she was the first black woman principal in the New York City schools. There was a brand new at that time school in Harlem on 
30th Street and 5th Avenue, which is PS 133 that Margaret Douglas was the principal of. And she decided for her school, she was going to attract this amazing coterie of Black teachers to be, you know, that's how she was going to build her school and the reputation. To this day, that school is considered to have had one of the highest levels of education for the entire state. And it was the state that did the study and confirmed that. So when Brown versus Board of Ed comes along, Margaret Douglas says, I should have the, my students should have the honor of being able to be the lead students for um, Brown in the wake of Brown v. Board of Ed. But my mother had been a teacher. She was an absolute devotee of education. She said that she went to school at three years old because <laughs> her her two big sisters, who were one and two years older than she was, um, there was this wonderful little West Indian private school in Harlem at the, at the time. And this is, you know, depression era that we're talking about. And every day her parents would take their three little girls to this precious little jewel of a West Indian private school in one of the West Indian churches. And she said at three, she cried so hard that the teacher finally said, let her stay. And so they created a, this kindergarten just for her. And my mother said she started school that day and never left. So by the time mm -hmm. I came along, I was already reading at four years old. Margaret Douglas wow. said, there's no reason to keep her home. Let her start school. If you want to bring her here, let her start school. Technically, we didn't live in that district. So the idea that people change districts or whatever, I moved to Connecticut, um, or we were going to kind of move there anyway, but how we moved there, because we we had had a wonderful apartment in New York that once you give birth to twins became rather small, even though it was a three bedroom apartment. So we were going to move. But at that point, the New York Times was putting out a book that listed every school district in the tri-state area and um, for people moving to suburbia. And we chose Greenwich, Connecticut. Because, yes, it was considered to have top schools, but it also had the most Black students in the school system. It wasn't until we bought the house in Greenwich and moved to Greenwich that we found that that number fluctuated because it more reflected wealthy white people who had live-in uh, Black housekeepers. Oh, wow. They would allow... Wow. Sometimes to bring their children, sometimes not to put their children in the school district. And so my children, even though um, we had so carefully <laughs> done this, ended up still being the only black children in their in their elementary school in Greenwich. Wow. Um, it's it's it's. <sighs> what can you say? <laughs> yeah, it's frustrating. It did you, uh, Africa, did you ever have to deal with being in a school or, or, or where your mom put you? Where did you? Definitely. There was um, in Alabama. I grew up in Alabama and they called it minority to majority. So that was the name of the program, like the program, how you could get your children to another school. So there was an elementary school that was up the street from our house. Um, my mother was also a teacher at the time, my mother, my aunts, but it wasn't a good, you know, wasn't 
a good school, so to speak. So I was able to be part of the minority. Now that I think back on that name, I was like, how insane is that name? I was bused to a predominantly white elementary school across town. And it was when I started at the school in second grade. So first grade, I went to private school, um, actually the school that was on the grounds of the HBCU that I graduated from because I was similar. I was four years old. I already knew how to read. My mother had done a lot of things at, at home. So instead of making me wait a year to go to school because my birthday was in December, I went to an all black like private school for first grade. But it after that, it was time to go to public school. So that's when I did minority to majority, rode the bus. And so from second grade to sixth grade, I went to this elementary school. I would say by the time I started, when I started in second grade, it was heavily heavily white. But by the time I got to sixth grade, it was probably half and half or maybe more black because the neighborhood people had started moving out of, you know, whites had started moving out of the surrounding neighborhood of that school. White White flight, exactly. Now, I still lived way on the other side of town. But that area had become now it it had become more of like the middle class black area because the whites had moved out and blacks are able to move in. And even it's funny, like I think about like in the summers, we would go visit my family in Boston and my cousin was in a program up there in Boston. I think it was called like Metco. And it was kind of the same thing. They lived in the city in Boston. And I remember one time I was able to ride the bus with her to the suburbs to go with her to like some school thing. And she was like all the city black kids were bused way out to the suburbs and, you know, to these like super white areas and schools outside of Boston. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's wild when I'm reading these stories is, and I'm like, wait, I've lived. This. Exactly. You know, like that's the funny part. I was reading it as if it was new to me. And I was like, no, no, I've lived this. Like because I my dad made sure I grew up in Highland Park, Illinois, which is the most predominantly Jewish neighborhood, actually white. And he did that because he felt that. In his, in his opinion, he knew that was going to be a better education for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all his business partners were Jewish. So he was like, I need her to go and be around Jewish kids. That's just how he felt. <laughs> and uh, so my school, I was the only black kid. Wow. Oh, there was one other uh, black kid there. <laughs> I still remember him. Wow. And I remember them going, how come you guys don't date? <laughs> and we were like, young it was like seven six years you know but that's i just remember the way he he had to chase the education to get me into a better school absolutely one of my at now you know and then of course what happened and it's in most of my stand-up is my dad lost his job Mm -hmm. moved back my mother and him got divorced moved to the south side of Chicago, went to a, a school that was not, was economically struggling. Um, I, they say it's better now, but back then it was not. And I was a kid, I was like nine or 10. And I just remember not learning a thing mm-hmm. that year. I remember being like, my mother was like, your handwriting has changed even. And not to say like Chicago school systems back then were bad because I remember in high school, because she moved again to the south suburbs and going to like what was a diverse school system, which was actually very healthy. It was black and white. It was the utopia of diverse diversity in the school. But this the black schools, like um, I believe New, um, Whitney Young and 
I think there was Proviso East. They're all the black schools were doing the the students that went there had the highest scores. Mm-hmm. And I would meet them in college at University of Illinois. And I was like, I wish I had gone to you. Like, and they were mostly black schools and they had high scores. And I was just like, and my dad would always bring out a sheet and show me what schools were doing well, what schools had the high. And I I always wondered if other parents did that, like if other parents were always knowing exactly what schools were doing what. But I always wondered also like in Chicago, if I don't, now they're having situations and issues, but I always wondered why we didn't adopt that model of whatever they were doing at Whitney Young or Proviso East in Chicago with blacks, predominantly black schools with high scores, why we didn't just look at that model, use it for the rest of, of the United States. You know, anyway. I'm interested, I find what you're saying interesting on, on a couple of levels is, and wondering Marva Collins is the name that comes to mind, that amazing um, Black teacher who created her own school and the fact that her students were all in um, top uh, scoring, top scores and academically excelling, really pretty much at the same time that they were spreading the lie that Black students just couldn't learn and poor students just couldn't learn and stuff like that. And here you had the Marva Collins School in Chicago. And I'm wondering about the crossover in terms of the time, because Mm. Marva Collins then was used to embarrass and to prove that what was being put out there which was obviously being put out there for nefarious reasons. You can always get a so-called scholar paid enough money to do some kind of spurious study to say that, you know, Black folks just don't measure up, you know, and, and it's always that. And it doesn't even make sense, you know, you know, so you can always do that. But Mara Collins's school was became this national icon that at a certain point was used to disprove that. So, um, and and indeed, Mrs. Douglas's school, back to Mrs. Douglas, Mrs. Douglas proved that. But the problem was that schools that didn't have the proper resourcing, didn't have the proper leadership, were allowed to fall for reasons that had nothing to do with the children. In fact, um, my mother got frustrated with me, but but I still hold to it. Education is the only industry where the customer is always wrong. You never hear any other industry is not allowed to be a success unless, you know, in, in fact, there is a wonderful um small chain of stores in the New York area, the Stu Leonard stores. And when you go and Stu Leonard stores are, there's one in, one in Long Island, one in Westchester, a couple of in Connecticut, one on the New Jersey side. And when you go into the Stu Leonard stores, first of all, they, wherever they are, they completely outsell the major chain grocery stores. Wow. And um, where they began in, in Connecticut, the chains, the chains that were nearest to them had to close because Stu Leonard's was so successful. 
they have, as you walk in the store, they have a rock and it says rule number one, the customer is always right. Rule number two, when the customer is wrong, see rule number one. (laughs) Okay. But when you go to school, especially if you go to schools of color, the customer is always wrong. And there is a correlation. Those who object, I'm sorry, but there is an absolute correlation between the period of time when in an answer to school desegregation and Black children were were primarily then sent to white schools, but white students were not necessarily sent to Black schools. And this was also the ruse that some school districts around the country used to close schools as a backlash to say, you want integrated schools? Well, we'll we'll just close those schools in the Black neighborhood. There are, the correlation is between the disproportionate numbers of white teachers in Black schools. And living in, um, and I'm I want to just finish this point very quickly, but living in Fairfield County, Connecticut, which I mentioned Greenwich, Connecticut, it's one of the top zip codes in the country. And that area of Fair, Fairfield County, Amer- Fairfield County, Connecticut, we found among Black parents who we kind of created our own book club, and then we began to talk to each other across town lines. Whenever we, you had girls, like I had girls, the girls did pretty well. But as soon as those boys got eye level with their teachers, mm. all of a sudden mm. there was a problem. They were downgraded. There were, there were behavioral issues. There was always something, and it was psychological. And that's one example of it. Another example of of this thing is that I was at a national teachers convention in DC one time. And the this I believe is probably the late 90s. And the the two heads of the two major teachers unions were on stage. And one of them said with great pride. And within right now, 80% of, no, 90% of the teachers, public school teachers in this country are white. And within 10 years, I guarantee you that number will increase to 95%. And I was so furious. I was shaking. And I finally decided I'm going to the microphone on this one. And I did. And I said, so what you're really saying is that within 10 years, the number of Black teachers and other teachers of color will have been decreased by 50%. Is that really what you're taking pride in? And he was, but he didn't expect anybody to catch him on it that Mm-hmm. So it's not just me for for those who want to say, oh, you know, she's doing. No, it's not just me saying it. This was part of the backlash to school desegregation. And it was a very deliberate thing. I, I have I was in um, I was in a situation where there there were, you know, groups of people and, and you know, ac- across the board, different backgrounds, et cetera. And, and one woman happened to gravitate toward me. And this was just a one-on-one personal thing. It wasn't there. I wasn't there as a speaker. To be honest, it was a waiting room um, for a hospital. And we saw each other regularly because we were being treated. And she said to me, you know, she was a teacher in the Rhode Island public schools. 
And she said, I just need to tell somebody. And I was the only person of color that she felt she could gravitate to. And she said, one of the reasons for the extremely low scores of Latino students, because they always like to act as though every white child is brilliant, every black child is not so brilliant, and Mm -hmm. every Latino child is (laughs) whatever. And that's the way the the statistics are reported, as though no black child has ever gotten a score higher than a white child. No white child has ever gotten a score lower than a Latino child. This is the way we're trained to buy into the racist thing. And she said, I've been a teacher for many years. She had taught in New York. She said, but what you notice is that on these standardized tests, children who for whom English is a second language, primarily Latino children, they deliberately give those children that those standardized tests in English instead of in Spanish or mm-hmm. with a translator. So they are automatically going to score lower for that reason, not because they don't know the information, but just because of the language. This is a deliberate pattern that we have to see. And then it becomes used without the understanding of the context. It becomes used for other nefarious reasons. And I'm saying it because parents need to be aware of it because how else are we going to protect our children if we don't know? It wasn't until we had this Black woman's book group in, uh, in Fairfield County that here we are all together. And one mother simply broke rank talking about what had happened to her son. And she had been so embarrassed that her son had done something in school and around the room it went, my goodness, the same thing happened to my son. The same thing happened to my son. When they come in and they're curly haired little brown boys, they're cute. But as Mm -hmm. soon as they get eye level with those teachers, they begin to downgrade them and have problems with them. It's so tragic because, um, I mean, we're we're looking at you who was a test dealing with integrating schools. And then we're looking at today where it's like two steps forwards, one step back. I'm looking at what's happening in New York City. And also because I, I just had a conversation with a white parent, by the way, who lives in Harlem that just broke my heart last week. Now, I'm going to have her on the show at some point, but she said, you know, she lives in Harlem, but she's she's one of of our allies. Right. Mm -hmm. And she's also one who constantly is like just listening and paying attention and not saying much. She just is very careful. But she said to me, she goes, I live in Harlem and my kid goes to school on Morningside Heights and I watched all of my white friends take their when they had an opportunity to take their kids elsewhere when there was an opening downtown mm-hmm. they took that opportunity to send their kids to those schools and now my school has less students in it and so we're getting less money because mayor adams who it's very difficult for me you know like he makes me angry on a visceral level yeah but and i'm trying not to because he's a brother and I'm trying to give him a chance, Mm-mm. but he's really pissing me off because he's defunded libraries. He's def- he's defunded schools. Yeah. And he's the one who talks about police and security and violence. And none of the talk 
has been slanted in the direction of what would help that is to have our kids have somewhere to go, like the school or a library. I don't see him coupling his his talk. Yeah, right. Right. He's like, he's like, all right, we can get with you if, about the police if you talked about education in the same breath. Exactly. And he does not. So New York City is reversing a $351 million investment in early childhood education mm-hmm. and dealing with a severe pay backlog for early childhood providers, which is very similar to the city's last budgeting season. Now, his point is that there is under enrollment of about 40,000 seats. The DOE testified that there were nearly 4,000 invoices predating Adams' administration that had not been completed and that they had submitted at least 3,800 back invoices from previous fiscal years, resulting in over $122 million in payments. Many noted that early education is a profession largely, by the way, made up of black and brown women who are already paid less than their counterparts. And many advocates testify that their contracts and payments have not been fulfilled for an extended period, leading to missing staff paychecks, causing providers to take out loans to stay afloat. Now, he says this. This is what he says. May I just interrupt you for a second? Because when you give statistics like that, people don't want to believe it. I just want to say I'm one of those people who was not paid for almost... I was asked to do a, a special event in May. It was ignored, ignored, ignored. Then it was blamed that the principal had been transferred to another school, so nobody could figure out how to pay me for this special event. It went on and on and on until I had to sit on it every single day. Oh, my God. And did not get paid till November. And they told me that I was being paid out of... This was just an appearance that I was asked to make. Um, And at one point, someone had the nerve to suggest that I should be doing it for free because I was uh, um, an alum, a K-12 alum. Mm -hmm. And I just did a slash and burn on that person, (laughs) you know. Because <laughs> right. you don't you you don't play with the wrong person when you come out right. with stuff like that. I brought <laughs> McDonald's to the public schools and worked for free when McDonald's did a whole campaign around my book Glory Days. So don't tell me about what I'm supposed to do because you're really messing with the wrong person. Yeah. But when I am contracted, I expect to be paid. I have been to the schools and done things. Um, when I did the McDonald's campaign, I asked Rudy Crew, who was then the chancellor, why do you want to do this? He said, because I get to tell our children that that McDonald's that they love to go to and they see your picture, they see your book and everything else, that you are one of them. You are a New York City K-12 graduate. You are one of them. So he took pride in that and he made sure that his students took pride in that. I take pride in it and that's why I've been to the schools for free. But when I'm contracted, don't play the game. And so it went from May until November when I finally got the check, as they say, it was, I was told that I was actually being paid as a special fund for minority and women contractors. And I said, well, fine. So what you're really saying is that you have a limited sum set aside for us. And even that 
fund you're not paying from. So the very people that you have made vulnerable to the system, because now you're, what you're really telling me is that you would not have hired me for any other reason, regardless of my credentials, regardless of the fact that McDonald's figured it out, um, and so did HarperCollins, but you can't figure it out. And you are then making me just what you were say, saying, other people have had to take out loans to, because it's more, in my case, it was just one appearance, but other people have literally had to take out loans because of New York City not paying its bills. And the one thing I will say about this is that it's not the first time that yeah. it happened to me. It happened to me long ago when I first brought out my backpacks, children's line of books and audios. And I made a major shipment to New York City because they were saying, you're, you know, you're our graduate and everything else. I could not get paid. And finally, I wrote a letter to the chancellor of the public schools and I said, I would love to continue to do this, but I cannot afford to do this. I would love to do this as a K-12 graduate, but I cannot afford to do this because New York City does not pay its bills. And I cannot afford as a brand new publisher to subsidize the largest school system in the country that is quite well funded. I just can't. I got the the check FedEx the next day. Wow. Oh, the next day. day. Mm, mm, mm. So they can't start paying people up front? They don't. Instead of waiting on the back end? They have, you always have to, when you are this in this contracting position, you always have to deliver first and then they pay you. Mm. And in fact, you know, this goes into another area that we can talk about, but what it means when we say the schools and whether or not we can do things for the schools. And because in this backlash era where teachers are now afraid to teach certain things because you have these crazy people who the Supreme Court is allowed to be crazy um, because and, and the Congress, because they are saying that a few crazy people have the right to deprive us all of freedom of, right. of speech. Okay, right, yeah. that's the crazy part. So, but under this, teachers are now terrified that they may say the wrong thing to the wrong, with the wrong parent in the room and ah, they go crazy. Librarians have taken death threats to this period of time. One librarian was, uh, she was on a show called On the Media. If anybody wants to just look up On the Media, it's an NPR show and put in public libraries and the show will come up. But she was talking about the death threats that she took someplace in the Midwest for a list of books that were never supposed to be in any library. List of, I think, 300 books. She didn't even have any of those books in her library, and she was still being threatened by this group that is going around funding and fueling people to destroy the schools this way and to, you know, say these are banned books in the schools. So we're going through a very crazy period of time, period. And I I mentioned those things to say, yes, I'm one, so I absolutely can personally confirm that that story is true about not paying people. But I also want to say that schools, especially the major public school districts, have had um, maybe because of size, maybe because of intent, um, have had a pattern 
of not paying contractors, um, especially smaller contractors who they don't have to pay because you're probably not going to do another contract with them anyway. The larger contractors on whom they're totally dependent for, for whatever it is, they will pay that bill, but they will balance their budget or their deficits on the smaller. And this has happened to me in other places around the country, not just New York City. So I just put that. That's what I was actually, I was going to ask Africa as you're listening to Janice talking about this, because you're in Georgia, right? She So she, Africa moved from New York to Georgia. And do you hear this conversation in Georgia? Uh, you know, because we do have the story. Yeah, here, but no, it's it, I have like a few close friends that work in the school system. I have a relative who works like at a charter school. So, you know, there's that whole thing of like them dealing with their funding and in their schools. And then I have another good friend who's been in, you know, Georgia public school system for almost 20 something years now. And again, it's like, I can just, we've been friends since college. So to just see how, what she's had, the you know, what she, the resources she's had over the years to when she didn't have it to, there are some years when they had more. And now at this stage, you know, almost 23, 24 years in, how like you're still having to like kind of scramble to make things happen or different things. It's just, it's, it you know, I, I'm not surprised when I hear that there's a deficit of Black educators because we already deal with a pay gap. And so then you go into a field that's underpaid no matter what race you are, and then you add the pay gap into it. Not very many people are rushing to, you know, to to say that this is the profession that I want to enter, even though we need more of us in it. I mean, my family's all like, we're all educators and I went the other way. So I, you know, I get it. And how many professions require two degrees to earn so little? People well, forget, that I was going to say, yeah, my most, girlfriend. Most I'm, public school teachers, especially in major school districts, have not one degree, a bachelor's, but two. Most of them yeah. have master's as well yeah. and master's in education or something like that. Yeah. And how many other professions entry level are requiring two degrees and being paid at the level teachers are paid? And that's the sexism of it as we go yes. into um, Women's History Month, because teaching had traditionally been a woman's profession. Interestingly, mm -hmm. as schools um, professionalize, you, you remain with women predominantly being the teachers as you K through eight, as you get to the upper grades, then men begin to come in but mm -hmm. basically, as it's professionalized, men get to be the administrators and women yep. remain the teachers. That's what's responsible for this pay gap. It is a 200-year pattern of American mm -hmm. education. I mean, what we're, what we're going to try to do for the school in Harlem that got defunded over a million dollars, I believe she said, um, it's already a tier one school, which I didn't, I'm not familiar with that term until she told me, which means that the school is already suffering from resources. Mm. So they need that money. And now that money's gone. And the money's gone because they claim there's no, as what Mayor Adams himself says, he goes, we are funding seats and not bodies in the seats. What he doesn't understand is the bodies aren't in the seats because of COVID. Because of 
what you just said, Janice, about the par- parents taking their kids out of school. Yeah. And then also because of the, the white individuals who did move to Harlem sending their kids somewhere else. to downtown schools. So she is saying to me, I'm living in Harlem, so I'm investing in Harlem. And this is my main issue with um, what I call displacement of ind- black individuals in Harlem is you're so you're moving into Harlem, but you're not really investing in Harlem yet. Well, while black individuals are still there, you're not mm-hmm. investing in the schools. I want to make the point that other schools throughout the city have experienced these funding losses, but they have also been. I re, there was one in Park Slope, for example, that felt it was didn't have as much money as it needed. There, there was one in the village that I've heard about that said the same thing. But the difference is that when you are in certain neighborhoods, what they did was they got together and they had a fundraiser and they, you know, created just out of Mary's dad and so-and-so's mom, they were able Mm -hmm. to raise, you know, some, some, I'm I'm not going to quote a number, but they were able to yeah. fill the gap based on their resources. When you are in New York City, in other neighborhoods where the people are, and let's not play games on who these people are. These are the salt of the earth people who keep the city going. I had as my guest mm-hmm. um, Richie Torres. He's been on on my show a couple of times. Richie Torres is a major advocate for public housing. And he, Congressman Richie Torres now, is a major advocate for public housing. And he makes the point and has all the statistics to back it up, that the people who live in public housing in New York are primarily New York City employees, who the people mm. who keep the city of New York going. So the city of New York underpays, does not adequately pay its, its employees, period. That's why these people are living in public housing, which gives them an opportunity for a decent place to live at an affordable price, but an affordable price based on being underpaid. And... Right. um. And then when it comes time to then underfunding other things like maybe done in other parts of the city, these are not the people who can subsidize a, a discrepancy right. in the school budget. They can basically hardly fund a discrepancy in their personal budget. That's so right. it, it's not the same thing. Well, that's why we're going to try to do a fundraiser for her school. Actually, we have a meeting set up. Oh, I would love that because I think that. And when she when she brought it to my attention, I said, this is a great opportunity. I know so many people like yourself, Janice. I said, and we will do it. We're going to do a show at the comedy club. There's a new comedy club in Harlem. It's black owned. And I reached out to him. I said, let's do it at your comedy club in Harlem. Let's keep it in the neighborhood. He was, he's excited about it. We'll do a fun, he says he wants to do more than one show. Let's do two shows back to back. And then let's film, she wants to film it. And let's get some people involved who grew up in Harlem. Some real celebrities, you know, Dapper Dan, who really cares about the children in Harlem. Dapper Dan, you can see him walking around Harlem all the time. 
He is very concerned about the children. Uh, so he'd be a great person, spokesperson about raising funds for the school, you know, because she's worried about. If, if you do it, you know, when you think of it that way, this is a documentary because if if it's happening in New York, <laughs> then you know what's happening across the country. Yeah. If New York City, the largest city in the country, if it's happening here, you know that this is the pattern across the country. Except obviously yes. in in well-funded suburbs. Right. And she said to me, she goes, I don't want the narrative to be that these kids can't learn. Oh, right. I want that to not be the narrative of my school because it's not the reality. She mentioned there was a school in Harlem that only had one second grader. What? So they lost funds because they had one student in second grade. I, I Unheard of. I, I, I don't even know how this is allowed to happen. So I'm I'm hearing this and I'm like, let's do it. Let's yeah. get involved. Um, you've got you've got a great story to tell. And it really is, as I say, it is a documentary, almost like, you know, because what I'm hearing from this is a similar situation to the documentary that um, Tanya Lewis Lee recently did on the disproportionate deaths of maternal deaths of black women. And um, to your point about there's only this in, in these schools or that, we are not looking at the systemic patterns that are causing these deficiencies. When the pandemic began, listen, just go back and look at how that was reported with these deaths every day of black oh, brown yes. people. It was never said, not only were many of them first responders, and that was the nice title that was given when, frankly, when they realized that more white people were on the front right. lines too. And then they began, instead of being hospital workers, they began, they became first responders. And, um, but nobody was acknowledging that these were the people who were kind of the lower paid people in the hospital system yeah. who had no PPE. It had, that was not being acknowledged. The problems that black and brown people have going into the hospitals, period, in this country, and we all know it, that was not included. And so you listen to that first, I, I remember just going you know, out of my mind listening to this garbage that was being put out where it was said, well, you know, they have pre-existing conditions and that's why, and it's really the diet and mm -hmm. the fact that they're not, it, no, it was pandemic. It was the pandemic. It yeah. was, it was what happens in, in hospitals all across the country in terms of how black people are treated. It was the lack of health insurance that a disproportionate number of people of color are lacking because the jobs that they have are not required to provide health insurance for them. It is the systemic part of, even if you want to talk about those people who, who are less fortunate economically, look at the jobs that are carved out of, um, of uh, uh, workers' comp, of social security, mm -hmm. 
and of unemployment insurance. And that was a compromise made with the KKK so that you look at those jobs and they are all the jobs Mm -hmm. that are predominantly held by black and brown workers in this country and women disproportionately so. Look at the jobs. And this is not something that I am just making. This is statistically um, driven. That was not mentioned as to why you had this truly disproportionate number of black and brown people dying at the front of the pandemic. It was all about blaming the victim for the crime. And that the tragic thing in, in what you said is, is still blaming the victim for the crime. The easy thing that's going to come out is, you know, black and brown people, they just can't learn. And, and in fact, mm-hmm. you had a headline that referred to Alex Rodriguez and, right. you know, um, and that, oh, yes. that was the line that was allowed to to make its way through the Supreme Court and get a decision. You know, black and brown people just can't learn and blaming the victim for the crime. Yeah. And we are so in danger of that mentality overtaking this country again right now. Yeah. Yeah. So so Africa, when you hear this in Georgia, this most predominantly, and that's the story that we have actually, um, hold on. Oh, about Georgia Tech? Uh, oh, oh, about, yes, these le- lasting legacy, yeah. the trailblazing women who helped in segregation at Georgia State University. Even though the case is so significant, it hasn't received a lot of attention or recognition over the years I've never until heard of now. It. Yeah, I've never heard of it. But it's just when I read these stories, it's, it's, I know it's supposed to be a heartwarming story, but it really is like, it's not heartwarming for me because one, she never even got, it's like, we're recognizing her, but she didn't actually, you know, she couldn't get the degree. And now they gave the honorary, they awarded the honorary to the three women. She's the only one alive, you know, it's just, and now one of, I think her grandchildren or great grandchildren is there now. And, you know, yes, now people can go there, but it's just like, we are living, like it is 2023. This didn't happen. It's, it's, I feel like so much of it is talked about as if all of these things happened like 200 years ago or, you know, a millennia ago. And it's just like, no, this is still in your life. There are three people on this zoom and it is, it is in our lifetime. And it's just, I, I get, I don't, I'm, I'm not heart warmed. I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, I grew up in Alabama. I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. So when I tell people I grew up in Alabama, like I grew up in Alabama, Alabama, like my great grandmother crossed Edmund Pettus Bridge. Like, you know, I know my grandmother was one of the early people. Like she went to the same college that I did, but when it was called normal Alabama State Normal School, I, went, I graduated from Alabama State University. And it's just, we have come so far, but what gives me like it raises the hair on the back of my neck is that like what I see what's happening in Florida, what I see what's happening, like the sentiments that you see online and the things that people are saying. It's very terrible. Like it's it feels scarier because it shouldn't be this way now. And so the fact that it is still so visceral and, you know, it's still happening and that they can still pass these laws that you can now take AP, like, I, you know, you can take these AP classes out. The fact that that can actually happen, it's like, no, we can't be as comfortable as we've gotten. And I, it, it has really shaken me because I think 
those of us at this age, like I'm 46, we were very much the generation that was raised of like, you know, you're going to college, we're smart, you know, we can do all the things, the world is open to us. And I can say that you get very comfortable. You get comfortable in your achievements and your access and the things that you're able to do that, you know, other people in your family never got to do. But to see that happen and happening now, like it's, it's very scary. I think you also said something earlier about COVID's the effect of COVID too on on the mentality of a lot of individuals who are at home and white individuals yeah. at home seeing their children turn around and asking their parents how come I don't know this stuff. Right. Well, it's and it's interesting because I do you know I live very much online like I'm on you know social media is where I really built a career the last 10 15 years and it's very interesting now to see like the younger generation like on TikTok and like you see them you know and they're very much about like everything's out in the open. So on one hand you see that there is still very much a lot of young people that still are holding on to like those racist ideas and believe in them. But there's also like a growing group that, you know, like their first president that they, you know, they remember like Barack Obama is normal for them seeing a black man as president. We were sobbing because, you know, it wasn't for us. So I think we're starting to see generationally the pushback and the questioning and the, you know, and like recognizing that like they are the people that can also push this change. So it's I've, I'm at a point where I don't know that it's change that I'm going to see in my lifetime or even the generation after me. But I think seeds have been planted that my hope is that, you know, after I'm gone, you know, and after all of us have gone, that, you know, these generations to come, the seeds are being planted that we can, you know, that will start to turn some of these things around. At least that's my hope. I, yes. I am so glad that you said what you said, because. I don't find these stories heartwarming at all. My my I just yeah. grieve for the 50 years that those women suffered, the jobs that they were not able to get, the extra things that they had to go through, the people who were denied, um the people whose lives have been destroyed by this. I I sometimes when we talk about reparations, I'm not uh, yes, we we deserve reparations, but we deserve reparations for segregation as well, yep. not just for slavery, for, for segregation, because this is what is continuing to take our lives away from us. Um, you, especially black men who, who have been trampled on and then the mass incarceration that becomes the ploy. And we know that mass incarceration um, has nothing to do with criminality. It has to do with white power and, dis and despicable abuse of white power. Um, people who would get picked up for some ridiculous charge and then be charged for their time in jail because they were picked up for the wrong mm -hmm. charge and then be sentenced to prison because they could not be pay the charges. That kind of mentality is, is yeah. what we have to understand that is too much a part of the United States. And I know this honorary degree is wonderful for those women, but it is not the answer. And I'm exactly. a person who received one, one of my honorary degrees is because I was 
I went through a thing after I graduated as an undergraduate where I never returned to my undergraduate institution for 40 years. It's hard for me to even imagine that that length of time can go by. And it's not because it was on the other side of the country. It was an hour, hour and 15 minutes drive away maybe from where I was, but because of an incident that had happened to me, I'll I'll just say it briefly, it was an attempted rape and I got away. But the police came and kept wanting me to say that the perpetrator was a, quote, apple picker. And apple picker was the derisive term used at the time for black and brown migrant workers who would come to the area. So the whole area economy was totally dependent on these people, but these people were treated derisively for it. And so when the police came, when I got away from this perpetrator, the police came and when I kept saying, no, he was a white man, I can still see the person to this day. Um, no, it was a white man. He was driving a state car. He was, and as soon as I said that. One of the police officers slammed his notebook down and he said, why you little whore? You think we're going to ruin a good man's life for a whore like you? At that point, you know, I mean, you're talking to a person who had just turned 18 and now I'm a little whore uh, because somebody attacks me and it goes on from there. And so Once I did graduate and I wanted to leave the school and my mother wanted me to leave the school because she felt that I was under in in danger. The police told me that essentially were telling me that if I do anything else, I'm going to be in danger. That's what we have to understand. This system is is predicated on. And um, just quickly wrap it up. I did not leave because once again, systemic issues. That was the period of time where you could not just leave from one school and transfer to another school, even if they admitted you. You were likely to lose a year. So here is my mother. At that point, my father died young of a congenital illness. Um, And I always have to say that. And that, too, is about racism, because if I don't say that, I know people will say he was on drugs. He was on this. He was on that. No, he was not. He was born with one kidney smaller than the other and never drank. And and that's what he died from. And I'm tired of black men being maligned like that. Um, But as a result, here she is working as a teacher to get herself you know, through and her daughter through college, we would have had, because of what that man did to me, we would have had to have found a way to pay for an extra year of college tuition in order for me to transfer. So I did not transfer. Um, I stuck it out for that reason and 40 years. And when I finally came back, it was because Two quick things. One, as a journalist, I noticed that what was for me, the new library was named for Sojourner Truth. And I was really struck by that. And whole time that I was at that school, first of all, they did not even acknowledge slavery in the North. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I had no idea that Sojourner Truth had walked to freedom to the very town that I was going to school in. That was where she walked to freedom, New Paltz, New York. Second thing is that 
when I needed to get away from the madness, there was a place that I used to just go in the evening, walk down to the river and look up at the mountains and relax. I had no idea until I heard about that library. The librarian took me on a tour of still existing places where Sojourner Truth had lived and walked in the area. And she drives me to the place where Sojourner Truth famously had her talks with God. I had no idea until that moment that I had literally been walking in Sojourner Truth's footsteps because that was the place where I would go to overlook the mountains to just detox. Wow. So the oh my god, that's amazing! Thank you for sharing that, Janice. I, I do finally not move to Newbolts, but relative to the area, I'm saying, you know, I, I my children are grown. I'm living in New York City. The crashes mm-hmm. just happened, etc. And I always loved the area for the reason I've just said, overlooking the mountains, the this, that, and the other. And so I moved nearby, but not to Newbolts. Somebody heard that I was in the area and decided that they wanted me to do the college's annual distinguished speaker lecture. So I'm being vetted for that. And I ultimately, I do do the lecture and I do tell the story about what happened and why the 40 years took place. And I tell Mm. the story because on my way up to being vetted for this speech, I saw police mishandle a young black man in the way nobody should be mishandled in the street. And it was clear that they were showing off. There was no reason to stop him because otherwise, you know, the vibe is an entirely different thing. And I mentioned that. So I told the story of what was happening to me because my question is, what are you as faculty doing, as staff doing to not allow today's young people to be harmed and and um, abused and emotionally depleted, even now, 50 years later. And for that speech, I was then, and I'm grateful for it, but I was then awarded as a sign we did the wrong thing We want to try to make it up to you. I did the speech and was awarded an honorary for that. Okay? And so I do grieve for, for, I at least got my degrees. (laughs) But You got to see it happen, yeah. the, the, The hundreds of million of Black people who have been maligned in this country, our lives taken from us, our possibilities taken from us, our hopes denied, yes. our hard work denied. No, I, I don't want just a little certificate that absolves you of all right. that was done and allows you to not do any serious recompense for yeah. what was done to all these people. Thank you, Janice, so much for saying that, because you also remind me of what they forget to talk about when they talk about our children and education, specifically in Florida, when they talk about their white children, they're never talking about what the black children have and are still going through. You were 18? You were 18? I was 18. I was called a whore. Yeah. 
by the police. Yes. 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 18. Was eight, I was eight and three quarters just turning nine when I started the school desegregation process. Yeah. And, and I still remember you telling me, you remember the white faces that were yelling at you yes. going to that school at, at eight. Sitting on me, one, one mother tore my dress. So even in when I speak these days in schools or, or anywhere, really, and we, we talk about that period of time, two things I, I, I speak of. One is that, and I make the point, I don't want to hear your politics. I don't want to hear what you think. I don't want to hear anything. I want to hear about decency because I do not know who raises, what mentality raises another person to spit on another person's child. I mean, at some point, you got to see that this is about your lack of simple decency and personal dignity, because nobody who, who has any pride in their own being would spit on a child. At some point, you got to take ownership of this behavior yeah. and stop all the nonsense and the fluff around it. The second thing is that I do remember because it was a great gift to me that at 10, I met Dr. King one-on-one -on -one because of, of being part of that school desegregation. And he and I had this conversation where you know, it, it was a receiving line, but someone obviously told him that this child is involved in this. And it was at the Riverside Church in, in Manhattan. And as I approached, he said, and what are you doing for our people? And I told him that I was helping to desegregate the schools. And he said, well, because what you're doing is important. And because of you, other children will never have to go through what you have gone through. And I thank you so much for what you're doing for our people. And he said that he and I would make a bargain and we agreed to make a bargain. And he said, I will keep doing what I'm doing and you keep doing what you're doing. And, and that was the bargain that we made. And so these days I say, no, Dr. King didn't lie to me. America lied to me. And I am going to keep doing what I'm doing because that was the promise that I made to him. Beautiful. Amazing. Okay. And just to also um, add these, the names of those women, because oh, I, I don't yes. think I've said it, but it was Myra Payne Elliott, yes. Iris May Welch, mm -hmm. Barbara Pace Hunt. These are the women who decided to not take no for an answer when they were um, refused education and went further. And with the help from the NAACP's Atlantic chapter, they sued the school. This is Georgia State University. And despite receiving death threats from the KKK, remember, these are children. And in 1959, the Hunt versus Arnold case became the NAACP's first federal court victory against segregated education in Georgia, but their fight was far from over, which we're hearing as we're talking today. I also wanted to mention this article. It's, it's also kind of like a downer, but it's the reality. We're talking about this, and I'm assuming a lot of my listeners are listening because they agree, mm -hmm. but 
there's something that you should know that's out there is that this guy Dilbert, the Dilbert cartoon dropped by was dropped by U.S. newspapers over creators' racist comments. This was written by the Guardian, Edward Helmore, and agencies. The comic strip Dilbert had been dropped. Scott Adams called Black Americans a hate group. Now, like you just listen to everything we just talked about. And he called black Americans a hate group and urged white people to get the hell away from black people in a YouTube video. Adam's comments on the 22nd of February came in uh, during Black History Month, came in response to a conservative organization's poll, which appeared to show that 26 percent of black respondents said they disagree with the statement. It's OK to be white. Another 21 percent said they were not sure. The Boston Globe, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post each said Saturday they were dropping Dilbert because of Adam's comments, which is great. But Gannett, the largest American newspaper publisher, said in a statement that USA Today Network, which includes more than 300 local media outlets in 43 states, would immediately cease publishing the cartoon. The Anti-Defamation League called the phrase, it's okay to be white, hate symbol, and noted that it was popularized in 2017 as a trolling campaign by members of the notorious discussion forum 4, 4chan, mm-hmm. which I never, I never heard of that, but it's, it's so fascinating how ignorant this um, man is. I mean, you know, it's like again and again and again. <laughs> oh, 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 that's funny. I didn't even pick that up. That's right, Janice Adams. Oh, no. Well, you know, <laughs> you're the good Adams, Janice. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But it's just, it's so, it's so interesting that we were just saying this on the last podcast. Like, now you're giving, like, social media has its back, its dark side, and its good side. Like, social media has given us access to people who've been main, mainstream for a while that we didn't really know what they were thinking and what they were about. And so in a way, we're starting to see that some people who are part of the systemic racism are in our culture, like as far as like what we watch in our animation and our TV shows, our directors, the guys who control network, you know, news. And all that. So and in some ways, social media has shined a light <laughs> on some of these really, you know, you're sitting in college. I remember sitting in college and you would always hear have the white guy go, I'm not racist just because they did slavery. I'm d- why are you blaming me? The fact that you're even saying that, that, the fact that this guy doesn't understand why black people are are pausing at why <laughs> white people say it's okay to be white. The fact that he doesn't understand what that triggers in us. Right. Says everything. You mentioned those three women and maybe you can put it, I just wanted to end it by raising their names and maybe you could put their names in the chat for your Patreon followers to be able to see their names. We have their names because you were kind enough to send it to us. But I just... Mm-hmm. Would love to. Oh, they're so good. Stace and TV are like, I mean, when I tell you they take it on, oh, wow. they probably have already written down the names. Am I right, TV and Stace? They're going to be like, yes. yes. They're so good. Oh, like, they're awesome. responding here. See, they've just put, yep. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's, I just wanted to, and, to, I just wanted that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, Stace is like, "Mm, yes, I'm in school today on this podcast. And And Stace wrote, Scott Adams first drew a black character in Dilbert last year. I guess we know why it took so long. I think the character, though, was... Like he labeled it the black janitor or something. Oh, yeah. He was a, an, an engineer, but they said it was like to talk about diversity, but also transgender like representation. Tongue in cheek. Yeah. Too. And then his. Yeah, the black engineer, Dave. Yeah. yeah. Like it's tongue in cheek. So, yeah. And even. But it's, it. it's just. This has been an amazing, amazing conversation today. I thank both of you ladies so much. It's always so easy to have both of you. Like, as I was sitting here listening to you, Africa, and then you, Janice, I was like, this was such a great, easy conversation to have with you because you're both just, you're speaking of warm heart. You're both warm hearted. You're both like just so intelligent. And just thank you for making my Monday like intelligent. Thank you. And uplifting. And that was such an amazing story that you shared um, that I think a lot of people need to take away with and pay attention to. So thank you, Janice. As we go out, Janice, I want you to mention your book uh, back, back, back. Well, what I'm my shoulders my African-American so I would love my website and um, sister days uh, and thank you for asking that and my backpack series is B-A-C-K-P-A-X-Kids.com and that is for 9 to 12 year olds and so I would appreciate very much but um, you know I'm, I'm very very grateful to be here and I am very grateful to you, you mentioned those three women and I don't have their names in front of me but when we look at the dates obviously I stand on their shoulders and I want to acknowledge that. With friends like us, I want to come back with friends. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's good. That's good enough. <laughs> and Stace thanks you. Thanks. So Stace says, thanks Africa, Miranda, and Dr. Janice Adams for sharing your brilliance and truth with us today. Much love. Thank you so much. Stace. Thank you. And listening and um, because otherwise talking about it and not knowing that hopefully we are carrying it forward to help each other and to help ourselves it doesn't mean anything so thank you for listening yes africa can you tell our listeners where to find you yes thank you again marita it's always a pleasure janice this is just i'm like you are living history so this was just an honor to share this space with you today I will be picking up a sister days. I always I love gifting books to my friends with kids, so I'm so excited to have a new book to add to my gift list. So I will be doing that. Um, but you can find me on um, on all the socials, Africa Miranda. Uh, my website is africamiranda.com. Um, and with friends like these, I will never forget that my black is always beautiful. Ooh! Oh yes! As we wrap up, yes. Know. Thank you. And Stace is saying, and Dr. Adams has a great list of 50 books that change the story of African America. See, Stace is already on it. I'm telling you. Stace is on it. You got a friend for life now. Uh, (laughs) Just sign up for the mailing list. Oh, I will. Okay. The start of that series. Yes. And Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. 
I have some dates coming up opening for Sarah Silverman. You can just go to my uh, link tree to see those dates and where those bookings are. Or you can go to Sarah Silverman's page. She always takes me on the road. She always looks out. So I'll be in North Carolina for two dates. And then the Beacon Theater and I believe Huntington, New York and in New Jersey. So, but go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And I thank you both, TB and Stacy, for being backstage, being Patreon subscribers and supporting the podcast because without you, it helps. You know, I don't know if I'd keep going. You, you both keep me up. You keep me going. You keep me with it. So thank you. And with friends like us, I need friends like you to educate and inspire me every Monday. So thank you. Check us out. Even your puppy said check the us out. The dog was like, I'm in it. I'm in it. The like, dog did it. I saw that he jumped <laughs> and I was like, I can't mute it because I have to say it. <laughs> no, it was so funny. Check, check us out. out. Check us out.